that, I invite you also to take a few moments to just connect with yourself, to see, to sense what it's like for you to be here and maybe acknowledging how your day has been. Perhaps you've been plugged in quite fully to the program of sittings, of uh, meditations, of Qigong and uh, other elements of the day in the gathering. Perhaps you've been also engaged with other things and uh, it's been a rather wonderfully sunny day where I've been. So it may be for many of you also, you've been able to enjoy the, the good weather, some, some way or form, been outside and just in, in coming together here in this, in this space to, to take this as an invitation to, to listen equally to yourselves and what you might be noticing or experiencing, what you may be in contact with, as you might be listening to what I'd like to share and speak about. And just to frame a little bit, uh, my intention is to, to speak for what will probably be a reasonable chunk of time. I'm not quite sure, 45 minutes, maybe a little more. And then to have some opportunity for reflections, for conversation, for responses. And uh, see again, just a few, you know, greetings in the chat, which is lovely. And what I'd like to speak about is something that uh, for me is very much a, an area of a lot of reflection in recent years. And I entitled this session, Embodying a Just Awakening, which I guess could mean a range of different things. But for myself, the, the question of justice in relationship to spiritual practice is one that's always been alive, one that's been part of what has moved me in my journey to explore and to to share this this path of practice that we call Dharma, we call teachings of the Buddha, that we, I think, can also equally call being really, really interested to know what it is to be a human being and all the, the complexity and the challenges and the beauty and the mystery of what that involves. And so, so here we are on Easter Sunday evening and uh, for me, Easter Sunday wasn't something that had a great significance when I grew up. It was, you know, holiday, nice, some time to not go to school when I was young and maybe time when I might not be working. But actually, as an adult, often I find myself as a Dharma teacher working during what are other people's holidays. And so it's not even particularly a time where I assume I won't be engaged in what I do. And yet it's recently come to have a greater sense of significance for me, really arising from what took place for myself and quite a number of other people. Two years ago on Easter Sunday, I was in London on Waterloo Bridge at the midpoint of a sustained period of, of activism, of, of active occupation of public spaces with the climate activism movement, Extinction Rebellion. And we'd occupied Waterloo Bridge for a week. And 
we were just having a, a gathering to celebrate and to honor what had been taking place. And Father Giles, who was the the uh, the minister or the uh, I'm not quite sure of the right word. Anyway, who was Father Giles, who was in charge of the Waterloo Church, where we'd been um, also been allowed to sleep during that week of protest. And he came to join us. And he spoke in a way that really touched me and spoke to my own experience on that Easter Sunday two years ago at the end of uh, or what for me was a very intense first week of this kind of action engagement. And he talked about how Jesus in the in the story in the Bible entered the holy city of Jerusalem, knowing that it would cost him his life. And how there was something of of a parallel in the the noble sacrifice that we might choose to make as human beings to honor what is most sacred, to support what we most deeply care about that we may all be asked to take risks, to perhaps pay a price. And that this was something to be honored, to be celebrated as one of the really beautiful expressions of the human spirit, this capacity to offer ourselves in the service of what we love and what we care about. And so from that, from that, sharing and that that sermon i guess it was or that offering that father giles made and that that point and what for me was a, a very powerful journey of exploration and of standing up and taking risks i found myself wanting more and more to speak about what our outer expression of practice looks like having spent most of the last 30 years focused more primarily on the inner dimensions but with always the sense that that inner development that we engage in is not just in service of our inner world and inner well-being, but equally in service of the world that we are part of, that is around us, equally as it is within us. And I think one of the fundamental elements of what we do, what we engage in when we, when we come to Dharma practice, what we're interested in is is really to understand how how and the part that our human activity plays in in the suffering we experience and that we wish to be free from and that we see around us and we wish to free others from we become aware as we practice that so much unconscious human activity is driven by self-centered compulsions reactive patterns and that this leads to suffering that is not something that's happening to us, but in a certain way, we are unconsciously complicit in or enacting behaviors that contribute to, in a significant degree, the suffering that we experience and that we see in the world. And in understanding that, we, we, we engage in and we commit ourselves to cultivating wakefulness, to cultivating a quality of sensitivity and presence where we start to see and become awake to what is happening. Those compulsive patterns, those reactivities, 
that we see don't lead to what we deeply wish for. And in seeing those patternings, we can then begin to more clearly and sustain ongoingly and in a sustained way, align our action with, with that which contributes to well-being for ourselves and for others. And so Dharma practice is always rooted in understanding that, in fact, how we live our lives is at the heart of what shapes, and we could say creates, the world that we live in. In the, in the last 12 months or so of the COVID pandemic, I think we've all seen, perhaps more clearly, more starkly than we may have already seen, how the impact of our actions, individual and collective, is so significant. How affected we are by each other, for good and for ill. And how we are all reliant upon each other for our safety and for our well-being, for our protection and for our care. And I imagine also, again, for many of us here, there will be a, a way of, in which we've felt very keenly for the vulnerability, for the isolation, for the financial and material insecurity impacting so many, perhaps, perhaps impacting ourselves or those near and dear to us, equally impacting others further afield and around the world. We see how deeply this can touch us to be aware of this. And we can also, I think, feel and have a sense of reverence or honouring or wishing to bow to all of those who've been caring for others in this time, caring for family, caring for friends looking after community members, taking care of those who are in the, in the health service as patients or residents. In so many ways, so much sacrifice, so much giving, so much extending out beyond one's own ease or comfort zone has been shown and shared and demonstrated in a way that's beautiful and blessed and touching in our world over these last 12 months or so. And just to notice what that's like for you as you're listening and hearing, and maybe this resonates more or less with your own experience, but both the, the way in which we are affected by how we and how others are in the world and how we also affect by how we are, we affect others and the world and ourselves. In this, we start to see that we are not without the capacity to influence, to profoundly influence the condition of the world, equally the condition of our hearts and minds. as we develop self-awareness, as we become more and more awake to our life, to our experience, to what is moving within us and around us, we can acknowledge the ways we contribute to suffering for ourselves and others 
through our own patterns of reactivity and comp compulsive or habitual responses of selfishness, of aversion, of confusion at times. And how when we didn't realize this was what was taking place, there wasn't really any way to free ourselves from it. But as we become aware of it, as we start to see this, then we take responsibility. And, and our practice is this, this, in a deeply heartfelt way, taking responsibility for what we can take responsibility for, while knowing that also there are so many things beyond our control, which we simply have to bow our head in response to, because we cannot necessarily fix or change so many conditions. And yet, our very place in this world is part of this world. And how we are is part of how this world is. In meditation practice, as we settle and quieten, as we go deeper into the simple, immediate, and mysterious, profound depth of what it is to just be here, to be able to be conscious, awake, curious, and open. As we explore the territory that we find ourselves amidst, we start to see, we start to recognize that we are not separate. The deep truth of non-separation we can't find a place or a thing that is separate from everything else. Our very breath, our body, the food that we eat, the sunlight that warms us, the oxygen that sustains our life moment by moment. All of this is shared. All of this is received from what is around us and ultimately returned back to that too. Our heart, in its awakened depths, it knows the intimate interconnectedness of all life and all things. Even if we ourselves sometimes forget or lose touch with or don't always act in accord with this, our heart knows this. And I think it calls to us by the unease we feel when we're out of alignment with that truth. Uncomfortable as it is, it's also something blessed and sacred, that inner discomfort, divine discomfort, it's sometimes been called, that calls us back to a finding our way to live in, a, in an expression of a life that honors this deep truth. And so when we talk about in the Buddhist teaching, being empty of separation, or as a human being empty of self, it's not a statement or a sort of an ontological philosophical position of trying to say some philosophical truth about whether I exist or whether I don't exist. The profound dharma of, of not self, of anatta, is pointing to this recognition that I, what I call me, you, what you call you, and all beings, all things, 
we do not arise in a way that is fixed or unchanging or separate from the conditions around us. We are fluid. We are affected. We are not impermeable. And nothing around us is impermeable either. So we are affected by our world and we affect it likewise. And so what we call me, what we call you, is not a, we could say here, what we call Yanai, this is not an unchanging or isolated self-existent being. We can reflect in this way and see that gives a freeing, a softening, an opening of the tightness that we can sometimes experience, the constriction around the sense of me, of self, of I am like this or like that. And if we reflect also, we might see that, and you may recognize similar that I, that while not being somehow independent or self-existent, at the same time, it's true to say that I am fortunate to have enjoyed a level of relative security, comfort and liberty in my life, growing up in New Zealand and living as an adult in the United Kingdom. This is not been the experience of many, perhaps most, of the human beings who've lived on this earth and even those who live today. So I'm fortunate in that regard. And I'm also subject to the conditions of the world and of history. And I'm the child of my father, who as a Jewish infant was a Holocaust survivor sent to a concentration camp in the Ukraine in 1942, aged just two years old, and survived. And I'm also the child of my mother, who was a six-year-old Bengali-Swedish girl in Calcutta, lived through the partitioning of India after the colonial powers of this country left. And the communal riots, the violence, and the mass dislocation of communities that took place in that city and beyond at that time. That have an impact. Not just on my mother, but on me. And I'm a child who grew up as a darker-skinned immigrant kid in the deep south of rural southern New Zealand. I didn't know it was the deep south then. It was just how it was. But I see how it was now. And equally amidst the, the incredible natural beauty and untamed wilderness of that country. And so I'm just, in a way, wanting to enter into some territory that I'd like to speak about. And I don't have a, a framework For doing that that I sort of can lean on. It feels like I'm called to speak about justice here and what that means. And I'd like to speak about climate justice, ecological justice, social justice. And I know that in doing so, I'm going to get it wrong. 
I'm possibly going to say things which don't land well for everybody. And so there's some, some vulnerability there for me. Um, there's part of me that thinks, why, why would you do this? But there's another part of me that says, how could you not? So please forgive me for my own limitations and unskillfulness so far as you may experience that from me. I'm really aware that I would like to be able to do this really well. And I'm uncertain of whether that's possible. But I'm equally aware that sometimes we need to have the conversations, even when we don't know quite how to. And just as there can be harmful speech and we can say things that we can regret, and I'm sure that's something many of you will recognize, it's also true to say that there can be wrong silence harmful silence where we fail to say things and regret that. So I feel called to speak, even though it may generate some agitation. I think it's natural when we enter into meditation, when we come into a situation like this, we, we might be looking for peace. We're wanting the agitation to be calmed, to settle, to quiet, and of course, it's natural and right that we would wish for that. And, and yet, the deeper quiet, the deeper settling, the deeper transformation of the agitation we encounter is sometimes only found after allowing ourselves to experience the very agitation that we seek to be free from. Our deep and natural wish for inner peace cannot be separate from an engagement with issues of justice. And I think we are asked as Dharma practitioners to turn towards the places that challenge and unsettle us inwardly and outwardly. So I invite you just to take a moment to breathe, just to notice for yourself how my words are landing. And however you find that, whatever you notice is your experience to honor that, to allow that to feel and to be your truth and appropriate. As someone who lives in the United Kingdom and have done for most of my adult life and in the Western world for apart from a few years of traveling my whole life. I benefit from physical comfort and security and material affluence of a of a culture and an economy that is consuming the limited resources of our planet at an unsustainable rate while climate destabilization due to greenhouse gas emissions and ecological devastation, eco ecosystem destruction, species extinction accelerate. And while many people and communities in my world do not have what they need, do not have food, do not have shelter, do not have security, do not feel safe within the society 
that I love. It's strange to be speaking some of this. It feels self-evident. I don't imagine this is news for many of you. Perhaps all of you are quite aware of this. Yet there's something that happens when we just allow something to be named. Allow ourselves to hear, to feel, to sense what that's like. It's sort of strange for me because I can't see you all. Some of you I can see through the pictures, but not all at once. And we're not sitting in a physical space together where I could feel or sense perhaps more of responses. And that's fine, but I'm just naming that because that's part of what's here. And I'm okay to be in this place that's not entirely comfortable. But I hope that you also feel okay where you are. And if that's not entirely a comfortable place and hearing what I'm sharing, that you can do what you need to to take care of yourself. In response to in response to the awareness and the urgency of our planetary situation, I've chosen to take action on the streets with other like-minded human beings engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience, calling for government action on the climate and ecological crisis. And in that process, I've been arrested, taken into custody, criminalized and punished. It is not something I would have a few years ago imagined was going to be my pathway. But there's something in the situation of our world right now that I think is calling to more and more of us to find our own way. And for each of us, it can look very, very different. I'm only speaking of my own response, not any idea of what someone else's needs or should be. But that we, we need to find a way to take care of a situation that we're in. And in describing what I've described in terms of, you know, arrest and custody and being punished and all that, I'm really aware when I say that, that I'm a middle-aged, university-educated, heterosexual, cisgender man who passes for white. So I'm a member of an immensely privileged and powerful demographic in this culture, in this country, and in this world. I'm incredibly fortunate in that regard for all the challenges of my life that are equally, that are real, that aren't to be denied, but I'm incredibly fortunate. And it feels like that good fortune is not something I want to claim ownership of insofar as that I want it to be just for my own well-being. It feels to me that this is something this fortune can be shared by being in a way risked in the service of what I care about. In this gathering here, this Gaia House Sangha gathering over Easter, spring gathering, we wish and hope that everyone feels welcome. And it's something we've spoken of in the, amongst the Guy House teachers and the trustees and the staff over recent years, more and more, the recognition that we wish for everyone to feel welcome at Guy House, 
in this gathering and anything we offer. And we also recognize that we need to make this welcome explicit. We need to say, and I do say, and I do hope it feels to be the case that you are all, each of you, welcome here. Whoever you are, however you know yourself to be, whatever your ethnic heritage, whatever your sexual orientation or gender identity, whatever your religious or cultural history and experience, whatever your age, whatever your education, whatever your class, whatever your ability, whatever your neurology, whatever it is that makes you you, I truly hope you feel welcome here. I'm certainly glad you're here just as you are. And I know that we also need to say this because that's not everybody's experience. As much as I would wish it to be so, it's, it's the case that in our society, this is not so for everyone. The norms and structures and culture of our world do not equally welcome, recognize, value and support all people of every kind. And again, I don't imagine as I say this, that this is news to most of you. But there's something important that feels for me about just speaking it and allowing ourselves to hear it, allowing whatever responses we have to be here. And we can see and point to so many different elements of our cultures, conscious and unconscious, that contribute to this. And some of the primary patternings we see of patriarchy and sexism, of systemic racialized oppression and racism, of homophobia, transphobia, ableism, so many different ways, classism, so many different ways that somehow we devalue what appears different in whoever we may call others. We see this. It somehow seems to be something we do as human beings. There's a, a tragic tribal tendency. There are good things about tribalism when we form community and we make a village in a sense with others where we share together. But there's also a way in which we separate ourselves or hold ourselves away from, apart from, and at times imagine ourselves better than, not just different than, other groups or communities. Not always consciously, but nonetheless with profound impact. And we can see also materialism, the, the urge, the insatiable consumption that drives so much of our social and economic activity to have more even when we have plenty and the inability to recognize and value recognize and give value beyond material possession and consumption 
that's expressed in so much activity in our world. And I, again, I imagine that these are things you're aware of that concern you too, that touch your lives in different ways. And again, it feels important to acknowledge that in speaking this, it's not that I'm imagining this is something you aren't aware of or necessarily something you will agree with every part of in what I say. But there's something I think really important that we sit together as a community of, of people interested in spiritual practice, people interested in the Dharma of wisdom, of compassion, of peace and of freedom. We sit together and feel into what's here for us as human beings. To see the ways that we may have done a lot of work and yet there's more work to be done to understand each other and the shared nature of our humanity. And for myself, there's been a journey in really the last, I guess, five to ten years of just understanding. Being someone who always thought, well, I understand about justice issues, but seeing that there are so many more. And of course, you can hear the probably the, uh, the, the error in the belief I understand. Of course, I don't understand equally. But one, one territory that's touched me in recent times, the territory of gender identity and how in our current generation, there's a, there's a learning, it seems, an understanding that we can't assume the identity, the gender identity of people according to how we might perceive them or how they may have been perceived by others. And so... By my name, I've identified my gender identity. I identify as a man. You can refer to me as him or he. And to put this, this is for me an attempt to express my sense of let's not make an assumption here. Let's leave it open. As a friend told me in the... Uh, University in the 80s, they, they, they wore a badge that said, why assume I'm heterosexual? And it's very sweet in a way. I think the, the journey of the LGB, lesbian, gay and bi community of that time was very much something that was in its earlier stages. And, and there's been a lot of learning and growing and still immense challenges and struggle in that community, but also more social acknowledgement. And it feels to me like the, the realm of gender identity is a whole new territory in which we're being asked to learn, to understand what might that be for another human being, that they themselves have their own sense of who they are in gender terms. 
and to not impose upon them our own. And it's interesting here because it, for me, it requires a, a rewiring of something quite fundamental that I didn't understand or consider. But in the Buddha's, or in the, in the tradition of, of the Buddha Dharma, there's something quite remarkable here, which is that there's always been something embodying that. Well, not, maybe not always, but the, the, the embodiment of compassion and awakening that we refer to and that I have here as an image, Kuan Yin, also manifests as Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara is often assumed to be male, whereas Kuan Yin often assumed to be female. Although, in fact, both of them are somewhat fluid, sometimes male, sometimes female. And it's as if within the tradition of the Buddha Dharma, there's a gender-fluid being awakened embodiment of compassion that is not fixed in gender identity. And I find this, there's something worthy of contemplating, of acknowledging. And another realm of of, of awareness, we, we were also being asked, I think, in this current generation in which younger people are a, a long way ahead of, or many younger people are a long way ahead of where some less young folk, and I would regard myself as definitely in the yes, less young sort of uh, category here, are with the territory of neurodiversity, which wasn't, wasn't something I understood until relatively recently. See, ah, we've so easily normalized a certain version of brain function, neurofunction, and abnormalized what is different. This is something we tend to do. And yet actually, what's becoming more and more clear is there's diversity of neurology. Brain, human brains can function in different ways. And it's so important that we, I think, understand these things so that those of our community, our siblings of all genders, of all neurologies, feel their place equal in our culture. And it's literal for me. My sister was diagnosed with autism just last year in her 50s. And it's such a relief for her to understand how her experience makes sense. And it's been a great relief for me to understand, oh, oh, that's why she is like that. Oh, that's how she makes sense in ways that previously I couldn't make sense of. And it actually allows my heart to be much more open in places where I couldn't previously because I didn't understand. There's something about our willingness to look at what we call or understand to be different, where that difference isn't easy for us or comfortable for us, where we feel threatened by it, or confused by it, to somehow um, deal with that discomfort 
by withholding a sense of value from that which is different, by not caring so deeply for that which is different. When that difference discomforts us, discomforts us or challenges us. And so there's this invitation in our practice, just as we learn to open to, to welcome all experiences in ourselves, to open to and welcome all expressions of life. That doesn't mean we necessarily welcome unskillful or harmful behaviors, but in terms of the human beings of our community, what is it to really welcome even that which we do not understand, which we might find ourselves uncomfortable in the presence of, or discomforted by the manifestation of that which is different to ourselves. There's so much in this that could be spoken of. Again, I just invite you to just take a moment Just notice what's happening for yourself. Notice how your body is. There might be responses you wish to make and there'll be some opportunity for that very soon. It's hard to bear. One of the most, for me, touching and accurate translations of the word dukkha. We talk about the truth of dukkha, often translated as suffering is that which is hard to bear, which is not easy for us to open to, to allow our hearts to be touched by. But to allow our hearts to be touched by this, this is the essential foundation for finding a response. Finding our response. And these responses that our hearts are called to make, to offer, I think is so called for, so needed in our world. When I last visited New Zealand, where I grew up, but I've lived away from there now 30 years, when I last visited a few years ago, it was the occasion of my father's 80th birthday and I was very glad to be able to celebrate with him. And I also spent some time in the mountains and the forests of the South Island that I, I love very much. And while I was there, I have an, had an encounter with a, a beautiful family of the indigenous New Zealand people, the Maori, a whanau family of, of actually 11 of them traveling together into the, into the wilderness as a spiritual pilgrimage. And I had some interaction with them. I found them incredibly touching to be around. There were three generations of the family and um, something very beautiful happened for me with regard to them. I'd like to just share a part of the story. I, I would like to tell it all, but I, I don't have time. And, and what happened was I felt so touched by the sharing that I was witnessing, that I was allowed to be present to. I, I said at one point to the elder of the group whose name was Nukuroa, I said, you know, I'm just really enjoying that you're in a way welcoming me into your little community and sharing with me. I'd like to give you something. I just feel this wish to share something with you. But of course, we're in the mountains in New Zealand. We actually had to backpack for hours. It's a seven hour 
hike with a heavy backpack into the hut we were staying in. And so I was aware that if I gave him anything, he'd have to carry it. It would hardly be a generous thing to add weight to his backpack. But I told him, nonetheless, I'd like to give you something. And he, and if there was something I could give you, let me know. And he said, yes, there is. He said, first of all, I'd like to give you a healing blessing, which seemed like that was a gift for me, but that was something he wanted from me, for me to allow him to give him that. It was very beautiful. But then he went on and he said, and there's something I'd like to ask you to tell your children. And something happened in that moment as he spoke, and I felt that suddenly, and I knew immediately because he didn't know whether I had children or not, and I don't actually have children. I'm not actually a parent. But when he said, tell my children, I knew what he was talking about because he was talking about the Pākehā, the, the European people of New Zealand, of whom I am one. And although I'm only three-quarters European, one quarter Asian, I nonetheless have lived the life predominantly of a, of a Pākehā or of a white, privileged member of that society. And he said, I'd like you to tell your children. And I knew he was not talking about my literal children, but the children of my community, the, the children of my heritage, of the European heritage of New Zealand and beyond, perhaps, saying, I'd like you to tell your children that our children love them. And it was just, it was very sweet to receive this from him. And then he said, and he said, he followed and he said, and I'd like to, I'd like you to ask your children to please love our children. And it was so poignant the way he said and asked that. And so clear how the lived experience of his, the children of his community did not experience being reliably and universally loved by the children of the white European Pākehā heritage community and by the systems that they had brought and the culture they had brought to the land of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And what does it mean for us to love the children of the other communities that are, are not our own, whichever community we may identify with or know ourselves to be part of, whichever way, what is it to love them? To see that so many have been left out of the care and support and the value that they need to be offered in so many ways. And we've, I think, so many, again, been touched by the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the call for justice in these terms. And likewise, the Reclaim the Streets movement. And just as we feel the grief and the anger of people whose ethnic heritage leaves them unsafe or unsupported in our culture, 
so too the grief and anger of women who feel unsafe and unsupported in the face of male violence. Not safe in public spaces, not safe in their own homes. To let ourselves sit with what arises, to feel the truth of these realities in our world. And equally the, the reality of climate destabilization, the floods and fires, the storms and rising sea levels, and the multiplying climate refugees. So much to sit with, where we see the need for our human community to stand up and to act, to find a way to come together. It seems as if, if we turn towards this, our heart might break. And I don't find it easy to contemplate this. I don't find it comfortable. And again, I invite you to just take a moment to pause, to breathe. If it's helpful and there's something you need to do to just take a moment to look around. Just to allow yourself to be present with this, this aspect of reality that's here in our world. It's quite natural and appropriate we might feel sorrow or remorse which is very different than a sense of guilt or blame or judging. Understanding on behalf of ourselves, our forebears, and so many of our current generation who do not understand, do not see, cannot see. Much as our younger versions of ourselves also had so much to learn and still have much to learn. But what does this ask of us? What do we feel moved to engage with? I found myself, as I said earlier, called to expressions of action and activism involving nonviolent civil disobedience, seeking to get the attention of government and and the population at large. And so many others are called and finding ways to act in this way and in other ways. If you seek one of the one of the I guess it's a slogan, but I think it's also a wisdom statement. That I remember encountering many years ago in the realm of activism was if you seek peace, act for justice. I think this applies equally to our inner life. If we seek inner peace, we cannot find it without attending equally to the world, not being separate from it. What we seek as inner peace cannot be separated 
from outer harmony that only arises where there is justice. And by justice, what I'm referring to is where all beings, where all life is equally valued, is equally cared for, has equal opportunity to flourish and to thrive. And it's so important that we nourish ourselves equally as we seek to support the nourishment and well-being of the world. So I'd like to open up the space in a moment for thoughts and reflections, for some sharing perhaps if you have responses. I'd like to invite that we try and speak from our own experience when we do so. And to just to hear a little bit and listen to each other in this territory of what it might mean for each of us or any of us where we find spiritual practice and the engagement with the world, seeking well-being and justice, where we find these things to come together or perhaps where we don't. And I think I'd like to bring these reflections to an end just for now. I realize there's more I could say, but perhaps what needs to be said can come in response to questions that might be asked or reflections that might come. And so let's just sit for a moment quietly before we open the space up a little. Take a moment to notice where you are and how it is to be where you are. To breathe, to feel. And if there's anything you find you might need or wish for that might be of support or nourishment, feel free to invite and to welcome that in. May our practice be for the welfare and well-being of all that lives, ourselves, each other, and all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.